Well, hey friends, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus. And today we're gonna to be looking at, at what motivated Jesus in his final days of ministry here on earth. So stay tuned. Hey friends, my name is Marcus and I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church and I'm so glad that you've joined us. So obviously for the past couple of weeks we've taken a little bit of a Christmas break, but we're actually back in our Gospel of John series today. And I want to ask you a bit of an existential question this morning. Are you ready for it? I know it's early, but I know that you can do it. If you only had a couple days left to live, what would you do with those days? What would you do with them? I know that's a little bit of an intense question. Um, but I think it's an interesting question for each one of us to kind of ask and, and, to, and to chat about. So I want to hear your comments uh, in the comment section. Tell me, what would you do with those last couple of days? Well, I'm sure some of us would spend it with family and friends and loved ones surrounding us. Maybe it would be that you're doing something that you love or maybe something that's like on your bucket list that you never quite got to uh, previous to that. Maybe it's that you're passing down some wisdom and some knowledge to those around you, to your friends and your family. Maybe it's uh, eating your favorite foods and having kind of those last meals that you love so much made by the people that do it best. Maybe it's traveling somewhere exotic and going somewhere uh, overseas that you've always wanted to go to as well. Maybe it's going to all of your favorite spots in the city. And, or maybe somebody's face is immediately conjured as you, as you hear this question and you think of them as somebody that you need to go see. Well, maybe you would take those time to maybe tell that person uh, how you really felt, you know, about that haircut that they got that they asked you about and you kind of, you know, passed the buck on and said, you know, that you liked and, and, and maybe you just feel like you need to like clear your conscience and be honest with them about that haircut. Well, maybe I missed some and if I did, tell me in the comments below. But I think I, no matter what it would be, I think you would try and spend those last days in the most full way that you possibly could. And if we're being honest, I think that we would say that the things that we did would be things that bring us pleasure and joy and fulfillment. Like I know that I'm that selfish, that I would do all the things that I want to do. Well, beyond this being an existential exercise for our brains to maybe kick us into gear this morning, uh, I think that this question exposes something deeper within us than just a little bit of like mental acrobats. I think what it exposes is what we value most and what we long for in this world. And what we value determines uh, what we prioritize our time with. I remember so much as a kid, my dad would say to, I, I, or I would say to my dad, well, dad, I just didn't have much time for that or I just didn't have time for it and so I didn't get to it. And my dad would always gently but firmly remind me, well, no, son, it's not that you didn't have time for it. It's that you prioritize something more or over top of that thing that you didn't end up doing. Well, today we're jumping back into our series that I, that I mentioned earlier called the Gospel of John. And where we find ourselves in this gospel is exactly uh, where Jesus is asking that very same question or is maybe living out that very same question. If you only had a couple days left to live, what would you do? Well, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because it's going to help guide us through our sermon today. Jesus's ministry is motivated and marked by love. It's a simple truth, uh, but it's deeply powerful in its implications as we see in our passage today. And this sermon is a little bit of a, a two-parter. 
Um, and so you will have to join us again next week to maybe find the conclusion of this two-part sermon. But today we're going to be looking at the beginning of these last days for Jesus and what he valued and what he prioritized in those last days. But before we jump in, let's pray. God, thank you so much that uh, you sent your son Jesus and that Jesus, you would live that perfect life for each one of us that you would bridge that gap, that, that chasm of, of separation from God, that we couldn't bridge ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, that you are marked, that your ministry is marked and motivated by love, both while you were here on earth, but also as time has gone on past then as well. And so we thank you so much, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. And, and as we journey today through your word, may my words that I speak on my own strength become so quiet so that your voice, your Holy Spirit can reveal truth to our hearts and our minds today. We love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's turn together to John chapter 13. And we're starting at verse 1 and going all the way to verse 11. And we'll kind of pick through uh, a bunch of parts here and there. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. So if you go to myevangel.church forward slash Bible, it will give you all the ways to do that, whether it's downloading a physical copy, feel free to pause right now and do that. Uh, or if you live in our region here in Pell River, that you're welcome to get one, uh, like a physical copy. And so you just have to fill out a short form to do that. But let's read. Because as I was reading this passage, I realized just how much symbolism and richness this passage has. And so we're going to just start reading just verse one right here. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When we look at biblical scholars, the timing of this passage and this moment in Jesus' ministry is a little bit debated. Now, some say that it was a day before the Passover. Some say it was two days before the Passover. Some say it was on that actual day. Um of the Passover, a very popular Jewish celebration. Now, this is only like a matter of a couple of days of debate. And when we look at the overarching narrative of John's gospel, and, and particularly this passage, the actual day in which this happens doesn't really change the, the meaning or the theological implications of this passage. Now, in some other parts of scripture, it does, so that's important. But for us today, uh, that debate is something that is a great like exercise, um, but doesn't actually change the meaning of what we're learning about today. And we have to be aware that with biblical texts, each writer has a particular main thrust in which they write their gospel or their book uh, of the Bible. And the exact historicity, while still important to the writers of scripture, actually often comes secondarily to the main thrust that they're trying to communicate, uh, both theologically and also like spiritually for us. And so regardless of exactly what day it was, uh, there's a piece in this verse that I think is actually really important for us to understand. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. His, he knew that his hour had come. And this is actually really significant because when you look back uh, in much of John's gospel, you see that uh, up until this point, Jesus says over and over and over that his time has not yet come. We see this in John 2 when, when Jesus turns water into wine, kind of when he enters into his public ministry. And he says no to his mom. He says, no, my, my time has not come yet. We see this in John 7 when he comes late to a feast and teaches his disciples. And he says, no, my hour has not yet come. Or when the divine protection from religious leaders happened, when they wanted to seize Jesus after declaring he was the light of the world. Again, he says, my hour, my time has not yet come come. And these are just a few examples in the Gospel of John. But now we come to this turning point. We come to this turning point, the moment when Jesus' hour had actually come. 
And what this means is that his earthly ministry was, was beginning to come to a close. The mission in which he had set out in his earthly mission of bridging the gap between humanity and God because of sin was coming to the climax of the story. And what was at the foremost of Jesus's mind when he realized this? It was love. It was love. Jesus' ministry is motivated and marked by love. It wasn't triumph. It wasn't revenge. It wasn't punishment or judgment or escape even from his mission that was on Jesus' mind when he knew that his time had come or was short on this earth. But instead it was love. And it was the suffering that was about to come in order to prove this. David Guzik uh, says this about verse 1. The cross is not specifically mentioned in John chapter 13, verse 1, but it casts a shadow over almost every word. We see the shadow of the cross over his hour had come. We see the shadow of the cross over love them to the end. But we also see the shadow of the cross over depart this world. It is phrased softly, but there is an iron hard reality underneath the soft cover. Jesus would only depart this world through the cross. This love that Jesus shows is, is not just for a moment. It was not just in his words even, but unto the end. Or more accurately, when you translate this, this phrase, it says to the fullest extent or to the utter, uttermost. Jesus, in his final days, was determined to show humanity the absolute furthest example of love that they could ever see the willing sacrifice of his perfect life for those who were unworthy of it. When Jesus says a few short chapters later that there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for his friends, he meant it in both word and action. Let's go on and read in verses 2 to 4. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now I find this verse incredibly interesting because it's contrasted so starkly with verse 1. Here, Jesus is motivated by love. We see that so clearly. He wanted to love his disciples and humanity unto the end. But in this next verse and following, we see Judas Iscariot's motivation. That it was personal gain. It was betrayal. It was the rejection of Jesus and his word and works on earth. Because the sad reality is that this wasn't just Jesus's last few days on earth, but it was also Judas's. And there's no starker contrast in motivation than what we see here. But you know what's beautiful about this passage, even amongst kind of a tragic, sad reality for Judas? It's that Judas was still invited to the table. He still had a place at the table. He was still in that moment when he knew he was going to betray Jesus. And when Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed, that he was still sitting around that table with him, with Jesus, who knew his motivation and yet was determined to show his love and grace for Judas in spite of that. If that is not the gospel in one beautiful package, then I don't know what is. And so in light of this, what does Jesus do? Well, he rises from supper and shows them not just in words that he loves his disciples, 
not just in words for us as we read the scripture, that he loves humanity, but he shows it in action. Let's read what he does in verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Well, I said earlier that Jesus' um, motivation or ministry is motivated and marked by love. But I have to say as I read this part that this is not just an act of love, um, but I'm convinced that it also actually might be a miracle that Jesus would even go near these disciples' disgusting, dirty feet, and not only that, but also wash them. Because I don't know about you, but I hate feet. Like, do not put them near me. I don't want to see them. So this in and of itself is like, for me, quite the act. And this is how I know that Jesus is motivated by love. Because if it were me, I might have honestly abandoned the mission. It required me, if it required me to physically wash somebody else's dirty feet. But all joking aside, this act is incredibly profound. It's incredibly profound when we understand the context of what Jesus was doing in his original context. Well, in the first century, people often uh, walked around either in sandals or in without any type of shoes. And with the climate being a desert, it was incredibly dusty. And so your feet would often become very, very dirty. And even as um, disciples were following rabbis, they would fall so closely to them that the dust of the rabbi's feet would often uh, like fall on their own feet. And so their feet became very dusty and dirty. And so we see this in the picture of Jesus as rabbi and his disciples. So when you came into someone's house for a meal, well, you wouldn't want to spread all that dirt and dust and kind of grime around the table. And so you would have your feet washed. But this was considered a task for the absolute lowest servant in the household to do. And in fact, not only that, but it would be disgraceful for anyone but the lowest servant to do this task because it was, because it was considered such a ritually and also literally unclean task. And yet here we see Jesus willingly stooping to the lowest position he could have by washing the disciples' feet. This is loving them to the utmost extent. Because as rabbi, teacher, Jesus would have been in highest esteem at that table. And this act would have been disgraceful in that culture for Jesus to perform. And yet Jesus shows that his ministry is motivated and marked by love but by love in action, in service to those who were under him. He flips the narrative upside down by doing this, and he actually shows that those that are under him are the people that he wants to elevate to a place of honor. Jesus' love and humble servanthood are never divorced from each other. They are married together in every action he shows. And I think with the exception of the cross being first, I think this is actually one of the clearest examples of this servant-hearted love that we see in scripture. But not only that, the Gospel of Luke actually adds a little bit of context and color to this moment. Because in Luke's account of this particular moment, we see that as they are walking into the house, the disciples are debating who is the greatest among them. And typically in this culture, the greatest, uh, the greatest among the disciples would sit closest to the person uh, of honor at the table. And in this case, it's Jesus. But instead of taking that position of honor for himself, Jesus shows that he is the greatest of all by doing the work of the least of all. In the book of celebrate, called The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, he says the spiritual authority of Jesus 
is an authority not found in a position or a title, but in a towel. But what we can come to know with Jesus is that often the actions he does, and we see this over all of the book of John, is that the actions that he does point to a deeper spiritual reality. And this is no different with him washing the disciples' feet. Let's read in, verse, in verses 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Peter, bold Peter, uh, balks at Jesus washing his feet. And he says, Jesus will never wash his feet. And here we see a little bit of the exposing of Peter's false humility. He was just arguing with the rest of the disciples who was the greatest. And then when Jesus comes to wash his feet, he says, Oh, no, not me, Lord. You can wash the other's feet, but not mine. But Jesus counters this false humility and says that if Jesus doesn't do this, Peter has no share with him. How often do we allow our false humility, which is just pride, to prevent us from receiving the very gifts that God is trying to give us? Where we say, no, God, no, 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 not me, that other person, when he's trying to give us a gift. And in this case, it's not just a gift of like provision for us, but it's the deeper reality of the washing and cleansing from sin, our salvation that separates us from God. Friends, there is no difference between false humility and pride. And here, Peter's false humility had the chance to prevent him from accepting the love and service and salvation of Jesus in what will be his greatest act for humanity on that cross. Friends, don't let your false humility prevent you from receiving this gift of salvation or, or any other gift from Jesus for that matter. But it requires true humility to recognize that we are in need of Jesus. Another commentator, Alfred, says this, the same well-meaning but false humility would prevent him, Peter, and, and does prevent many from stooping to receive at the hands of the Lord that spiritual washing, which is absolutely necessary in order for us to have any part in him. And as much as we see uh, this, this moment of Peter like exposing his false humility, we see like his persistence and his like really flipping of the, the conversation here. Because his persistence seems kind of annoying. He's like, no, Jesus, not my feet. And then Jesus says, hey, you have no part with me. And he's like, oh, then like do my, my hands and my head and my feet also. And it seems like, to be honest, when I was reading this, I'm like, this seems kind of like annoying, Peter. Like, buddy, you just said the opposite to Jesus. Like, hey, no, you're never going to wash my feet. And now you're changing your tune? Like, now you're changing your tune. And yet, this persistence to receive the grace of God when we failed is actually exactly what Jesus wants. Someone who is unashamed to admit their need for him and to identify with Jesus, even in their failure and in their brokenness. And so I do have to commend Peter because he sees his wrong and he makes a very quick adjustment and as a result, uh, understands the spiritual reality in a little bit of a deeper way. And Jesus reminds Peter that in the realm of faith, if you have already received Jesus, 
He has received you, he has washed and cleansed you. But that doesn't mean that we still can't get some dirt on our feet. We can still sin against him, turn away from him. But that if we come back to him with that heart of repentance, if we, like Alfred said, stoop again to a place of receiving from Jesus, that, we, uh, will, that he will dust off those parts that have become dirty and he will restore us again. But there's a paradox because we also do see in this passage the picture of Judas. That there is the invitation to come to him, to return to him. That Jesus just said, hey, Judas, like, there's still time. Don't miss it. I'm doing this cleansing of your feet in service to you, but I'm going to be doing an even, even deeper spiritual cleansing. Like, P Judas, do you see this? But one of Jesus' greatest acts of love is that he gives us free will to decide if we will accept him or reject him. But friends, I need you to consider this. It can be really easy to see Judas and be like, oh, like he's the worst of the worst. But none of the disciples, any of the other ones, did anything to earn this act of love from Jesus. But he gave it to them and to Judas and to you and I as a free gift. David Guzik comments on this. He says, we are grateful that Jesus did not say, if you do not have great holiness, you have no part with me. We're happy he did not say, if you are not a Bible expert, you have no part with me. Having a part with Jesus begins with simply receiving something from him, not achieving something ourselves. The greatest gift of this passage, friends, is that this is not something that we can achieve or earn on our own merits. We can be the holiest, what seems like the outwardly most holy person. We can be the expert on the Bible, but the reality is none of those things achieve or earn our salvation. But it is a free gift from Jesus to each of us today, both in accepting Jesus for the first time and receiving that salvation and also receiving his forgiveness from sin as a person of faith. But to receive this free gift, we have to admit that our feet are dirty and, it's in need of, and they're in need of cleansing. We can't receive salvation by washing our own or others' feet, but only by accepting the washing of Jesus, our perfect savior and perfect king and perfect example and sacrifice. And so today, it begs the question, what will you choose? Will you allow Jesus to minister to you through his motivation of love and service, even though none of us deserve it? Or, or will you choose the opposite? Well, friends, one of the most beautiful pieces and pictures of this passage is that Jesus still washed Judas's feet. Judas, the man Jesus knew would betray him, reject him, and turn away from following him unto the end. The one who deserved Jesus's justice and judgment. And yet Jesus' mission is motivated and marked by love. And so he washed Judas's feet. But the reality is Judas still did have a choice. He still had a choice. And even though Jesus served him in this way, he chose willingly to reject him. Well, to close, I wanna tell you a story uh, about my grandpa Bob. Well, my grandpa Bob lived a pretty challenging upbringing. Um, his dad died very early in his life. Uh, he was quite young. He went to a boarding school that was quite severe and had like, just a challenging upbringing. And I think those things, along with a lot of other things, unfortunately led him to living a life um, of addiction through alcoholism. And he was an alcoholic for his whole life. 
Uh, but in spite of this, was like generally successful in his career. Um, he like th he didn't want for anything. Um, he lived in this beautiful like suite uh, in Vancouver downtown, and he kind of lived what outwardly seemed like a really great life. However, his addiction did take a lot from him. Yes, he may have been wealthy, but he was never able to commit to a long-term relationship. He had all he wanted in terms of possessions, but he damaged his family and friends' relationships. He seemed outwardly happier, what to the world would seem successful, but he was often very cruel, and he looked down on people quite severely, and and he was somebody who seemed really successful, but inward was battling a lot of internal darkness. And, and him and our family always had a bit of a challenging relationship, particularly my mom. As he was absent one day and then present in her life the next, but still as he was present was kind of aloof. And it really wasn't until late in his life that he began to uh, have a bit of an effort to mend some of those bridges. Well, later in his life, very near to his death, um, through a number of circumstances, he ended up jumping the border to escape the government. Um, he was homeless. He couldn't afford medication for his heart. Um, and although he once had everything, his lifestyle eventually caught up with him. And he was humbled in a pretty profound way. And you know, my grandpa knew about our family's faith. He saw the sacrifices that my parents made as they journeyed in ministry and, and as our family did as we lived that lifestyle together. He saw the Christ-like for, Christ forgiveness my mom offered to him time after time after time, and yet he always rejected faith in Jesus. And he was even pretty demeaning to people of faith. He wasn't just aloof to it, but he was actually openly oppositional toward it, even in spite of the examples he saw. But as he lay dying in that hospital alone, penniless and disgraced, my mom went to visit him. It was just by almost a miracle that he was in the hospital in the city that my parents lived. And my mom felt so strongly near to the end of his life that before he passed, she needed to present the gospel to him one last time. And so she did. She visited him. She shared about the reality that so far gone is not too far gone with Jesus. And she shared some scriptures with him that she felt impressed upon her heart to share with him. And you know, friends, he died shortly thereafter. Um, his lifestyle caught up, his heart problems caught up, and he did die shortly thereafter. And to be honest, to this day, I'm still not sure if he ever accepted Jesus after that visit with my mom. But what I do know, what I do know is that in the same way that there was a place at the table for Judas's feet to be washed, so there was for my grandpa up until he took his very last breath. There was a place at the table up until he took his very last breath. And so is there a place at the table for you and I to, to be washed and cleansed and to be restored into a relationship, to, to be joined around the table with our Savior and King. Because Jesus has both given you and I a seat at the table and will serve you in cleansing from you from the mistakes you've made, from the past that you've endured, and give you a future and a hope. But in order to do that, we might need to humble ourselves a bit and accept that free gift of Jesus with open but undeserving hands. And this is a picture of the gospel. That Jesus loved you so much 
that he went to the uttermost to show that love for you even while we were against him, even while we rebelled against him. And he offers not only just forgiveness, but a seat at his table to be washed and served and cleansed. And up until our final breath, there is, it's not, time is not up. That up until your final breath, no matter what you've carried through life, that there is hope for you as well. But it takes us to receive it with open but undeserving hands. And so friends, I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer together. And, uh, and I, I don't know where you're at, but if you want to respond by either accepting that free gift or maybe accepting forgiveness from Jesus as a person of faith because you've been carrying um, some sin along with you that you need to be unburdened, that I would just encourage you to, to join with me in this prayer. God, thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus and that Jesus, you loved us to the uttermost to the end. And then even beyond that, as you rose again, thank you, Jesus, that all of us, while we were undeserving of your grace and love and forgiveness, that you offered yourself on the cross to die for our sins and to restore that broken relationship that we have between us and God. And so Lord, if there are people here today who are feeling in their spirit that they need to accept that cleansing, that washing, they need to believe in what you say and what you've shown, that they would do that and your Holy Spirit would, would regenerate them in this moment, that you would, they would know your presence and your love for them. And if there are those of us who need to maybe turn away from some habits or, or things that we've been carrying along with us and receive again the washing of our feet, God, that, you would, that we would do that humbly, that we come to you knowing that there is still a seat at the table for each of us and that you still are able to cleanse us and wash us as well. And so God, we accept that free gift, knowing that we're undeserving of it, and yet in your love, you give it to us anyways. God, we thank you and we love you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, if you took that first step um, in accepting Jesus as your savior today, we don't want to leave you alone in that. We want to celebrate with you. We want to answer questions for you. Uh, we want to journey with you in that, whether you live in Powell River or you're joining us from afar. Uh, so if you just text the word hello to 604 210-8535, the number and all the information is on the screen. We would love to just chat with you, introduce ourselves, uh, answer any questions that you may have and journey with you because we are not meant to do this faith journey alone. Well, thank you friends so much for joining me and I hope you have a great Sunday. Hey guys, we just have a few things we want to let you know about. Uh, tomorrow, if you're watching this on release day, tomorrow, Monday at 7 o'clock, Evangel Youth is kicking off for the year 2022. So we're excited to invite you. If you are in grades 8 to 12, we would love you to invite you to an on-site, in-person youth gathering at 7 o'clock here at Evangel Church. Uh, we want to just have you mark some dates in your calendar, January 23rd, 24th, 25th. That's a Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday night at 6.30 p.m., Nights of Prayer. Uh, one of our values here at Evangel Church is we begin with amen, surrounding all we do with prayer. And so we want to begin this year, 2022, with prayer. And we would invite you 6.30 on the 23rd, 24th, 25th to do just that. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us. We hope you have a great week.